Welcome to SKU Talks. We are your one-stop shop for all things e-commerce. While I tend to skew towards Amazon, no pun intended, our guests come from all sorts of professional backgrounds, and I'd like to think there's something in here for everyone. Thanks for joining. All right, all right. I am here today with Ian McIntyre. Ian and I were talking for a bit yesterday, and Ian specifically is, well, Ian does a lot of things, but Ian is definitely an expert in an area of e-commerce and, and specifically Amazon that I would say I, I don't have a ton of exposure to and, and that we haven't had anybody on that is an expert in this space. So I'll let him cover it, but generally speaking, uh, wholesaling, retail arbitrage, really interesting areas that Ian was educating me about a bit yesterday. And uh, we could talk about this stuff for hours. So Ian, thanks so much for, for coming on. And why don't you tell everybody just a little bit about you? Thanks a lot for having me. I'd love to. So my name is Ian McIntyre. Uh, I am a life and business coach for entrepreneurs and small business owners. I also sell on Amazon doing arbitrage, wholesale, and have a couple of private label products in the works. One of my favorite things about Amazon is just how many different ways there are to do business on it. Um, I got my start a little bit in 2017. I uh, did some online arbitrage and took a, a course from a friend of mine. He's a prolific uh, private label guy. He's done about 200 products that he's launched. Um, but I had a lot of health problems. I actually had health problems for about two decades. So in the last year, really started getting on top of everything. Started doing a lot of uh, retail arbitrage, online arbitrage, and wholesale, and then cracking into private label. Uh, and I've done a ton of research on all of these things. I have a massive network of people that I talk to regularly, um, just so that I can leverage other people's knowledge to help me get to where I'm trying to go faster and easier. Yep, that's exactly the point of this podcast. So I love that. <laughs> Just the concept of uh, letting others make the mistakes for you or learn the lessons for you so you don't have to learn everything the hard way every single time. So that's awesome, man. I guess just, just to kick things off here, just for those who aren't familiar just with the general terminology of, of arbitrage and wholesaling and I guess how they're different or what they generally both are, I think that'd be super helpful. Absolutely. So arbitrage is simply buying something for one price and selling it for more and the arbitrage is the money you make in between. Now, when you're talking uh, retail and online arbitrage, you're buying from retailers, you know, Walmart, Kohl's, Nike, things like that. Retail, you're going into the store, you're buying directly, it tends Got to be it. the highest margin, but you're limited to the stock that's in any particular outlet. Uh, online is great because yep. you can do it from home. You can hit so many stores. You can get, you can spend a ton of money doing stuff, but there are also some limitations. You can only, you know, some stores really don't want resellers. They will eventually ban you. They will cancel your orders, things like that. Wholesale, the great thing is they want you to buy more because they know you're going to sell it. So you're able right. to develop relationships and get larger quantities, but all of them have their, their challenges and wholesale actually has some of the biggest pitfalls in the industry. And not to dissuade it. I know people selling a million a year. I know people selling 10 million a year doing wholesale. So the opportunity is there, but you can encounter some issues. So one thing, when you go and buy something from Amazon and you return it, it gives you a reason. You're just clicking a button. Why do you want to return it? I bought the wrong thing. It's the wrong size. But then some of the options tell Amazon certain things like maybe they think the item is counterfeit or there's a problem there. And so what happens is, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. So what happens is Amazon then says, well, prove it, prove that it's not. So we submit our paperwork, our invoices, things like that. And, you know, if you're buying from Nike, they're like, okay, that's a reputable retailer, no problem. If you're buying from a wholesaler, though, they say, great, show us your entire supply chain. And if your guy won't give up their guy, which why would they in most cases, 
you're kind of up a creek without a paddle. You can't produce the documentation that says you're legitimate. And so you're caught in the middle. This can yep. lead to account suspensions. This can lead to banning. And so it, it's tough because you go in and you buy a ton of stuff. You think you're doing the right thing. Uh, but then you also don't know where they got their stuff. So a, a couple right. of crazy stories. One person, so in the middle of the summer, there was actually like some trucks stolen in California, like like old school mafia movie stuff. They came in, they stole a bunch of trucks of Instapots and shark vacuums. And so a lot of people that were in this space selling, well, these guys sold it to various distributors. The supply yep. chain got super muddy. Everybody had to produce paperwork and everyone that couldn't, all of a sudden they're accused of selling stolen goods and their accounts are immediately shut down. Their and they already paid for all of it, even if it was cheap. And then they have it and they can't sell it. So they just have all this stuff on hand. Oh, yeah. Man. And Amazon holds your money because why would they give you money right. for something that you theoretically stole? So yep. it's crazy. And then, you know, something else that happened to a friend of mine, he he's newer in the space. And so there are companies that just represent brands on Amazon. So they'll go to the company and say, hey, we'll take care of all your online sales, we'll sign an exclusive. And so they sent him a, a cease and desist letter, basically saying, stop selling this now. And he had gotten a fake one. There, there's bad actors that will pretend to be this and send fake documentation to kick people off their listing to reduce competition. And he got one like a month before that. So we assume this one was fake. It's not. So like this company came after him and actually is taking him to court. And he tried to settle with it, but their business model is making money from suing people. So like there's all of these different things that can yeah. happen. It's, uh, it's interesting because it's like on one hand, the benefit and I guess the time saving quality of this is that, you know, you're not doing R&D for your own products. You're not creating your own brand. You know, you cut out a lot of the legwork as far as developing something that's uniquely your own and you get to ultimately capitalize on the brand authority or, you know, that ultimately that lot of work over a long period of time that another another brand or product has already done. But you run into issues with double checking your authenticity. You run into it's just a it's easier in some ways, but then it, it's ultimately just a whole other set of hoops that you have to learn how to navigate and jump through, I'd imagine early on that's got to be a mistake that everybody makes a few times as far as just just purely even just talking about the authenticity component absolutely and you know with private label you're putting so much more money into ad spend for example yep. so with this even if you lose a little bit of money per unit a price tanks you still have more where if you to make missteps with ad spend like well that's just going to be money lost so right. it really does it, it straddles the arbitrage and the private label of some of the challenges that they both share, but this can get you in a little faster. And you're right. You know, if you're selling Nike, for example, they spend, I think, $4 billion a year on marketing. So you get to leverage their marketing versus doing your own thing. But right. there, there are the challenges. And so you want to ne network, have a lot of communication, try to get to know your suppliers as the best you can. And if you can, you're going to go brand direct and generally smaller brands, but trying to cut out some of the pitfalls with that. Right, right. And then it, it is interesting with platforms such as Amazon because the competitive landscape is is interesting. How does that work as far? Because I mean, from my side, working with a ton of brands and working with not a ton of brands who do this, but definitely working with brands who do this, uh, they sell to ultimately other sellers who sometimes sell, you know, then various online marketplaces. And there are the things you have to deal with, like the buy, the buy box or if you're buying 
directly from a brand and they're selling to a number of wholesalers, then you're ultimately also competing with other people that are selling exactly the same product. Is that is that a big roadblock that you see in that space or it can be. Um so it it for the inexperienced seller, it's a problem because you are competing with multiple other people. For the experienced seller, that actually can give you a value edge because a lot of big brands they'll have, you know, obviously a minimum order quantity, but then they also tend to have um sometimes they have structured pricing. So they want everybody to stay within a certain price range. But yep. then you can come in and say, well, are they running any ad spend behind it? Are they, how is their customer service? How are they representing the brand? So sometimes right. where you have a bunch of sellers that are, that just don't care as much or a little sloppy, it can give you that edge in with the brand itself because you show that you're more professional, you understand the landscape, and then you can be more competitive in that way. That makes sense. Just, just in terms of being able to actually push the product effectively and purchase more. They want somebody who, and just as far as how it looks on their brand, they want somebody that's going to represent them as well as possible. And that ultimately just limits the amount of people that are able to sell any product. Because I have seen, you know, we worked with a large footwear brand for a long time and they had something like 30 sellers on an Amazon listing. And it made things tricky because on one hand, that's you know a lot of people competing for the buy box and depending on the routes they're using to sell on amazon it can be incredibly competitive or one person can dominate it um, and then there's the concept of the brand itself who is also often selling on amazon directly and the team that manages their amazon sales is not the team that manages their wholesale sales so it's almost like people are competing with each other within i mean it is, is exactly like people are competing with each other within the same brand, which is a, is a really unique type of competition, even just outside of like competing with other brands in the same space. Absolutely. And what's interesting is when you look at enough listings, you can see at times where the brand has dominance over it or one seller has that dominance. But there's other times where you look at it and go, man, everybody else is really kind of sloppy. They're leaving money on the table. They're They're really not... I mean, if you look at certain listings, you can see, you know, a listing that has the A plus content, for example, they've really put their work into it. Their marketing is good. And you're like, this is a real brand. Like you really feel yeah. that. And there's other times where right. you look at a listing and you're like, who put this together? I mean, no, no disrespect to hardworking people, but you get somebody on Fiverr that just slaps something together. And now you have a bunch of people fighting totally. over this. It actually makes the brand a little less attractive at times. Like how can you bring value to that and actually squeeze out some of this competition because in a way they're not competition on a professional level they're just competition right. on the sales level that makes sense yeah that totally makes sense because i definitely think that that's a good example of somebody who does this professionally and does the work versus the common misconception i think of people who try to utilize these different uh online platforms as a way to basically make money while they sleep or as a side hustle or like a set it and forget it type of you know passive income stream as they like to say so so many people will treat this as a passive income stream and as such they think they can just buy things in bulk list them wherever and then all of a sudden it's all going to get sold and they're going to make a bunch of money without doing anything but i guess people having that attitude probably is ultimately beneficial for people like you who actually do the work to make sure the sales are being made 
Absolutely. I mean, few things are set it and forget it because at some point there's going to be an issue. Are you prepared to deal with that issue? And I've seen sellers right. come out the gate and make a bunch of money their first year, but because they don't understand the systems, the fees, various things, the second year they're losing money. And now they're questioning why they're even in it because they're not putting any work into it. So what's the motivation to keep staying instead yeah. of like building out a team or creating systems that allow you to buy back some of your free time, but still execute on a high level? Yeah, hundred percent. That makes sense. I, I think those are those are definitely lessons learned over time. How much? I mean, this isn't even. This is just something that I thought of just now. But how much do you view the like product and brand selection process? As far as like, obviously, it's incredibly important. But if you have a system, which it sounds like you do, to differentiate yourself from other sellers, and I'm assuming there are a couple brands that are really, really popular for, for wholesalers. How do you view the selection process for brands and products? Like how much, what percentage of the work is that initial selection versus getting everything sold from that point on? I'd say that's probably 50% is just going out there. And like anything, you're looking at thousands of products, potentially you're calling hundreds of suppliers so that you can find the products that make sense. You, I take a data-driven approach. So you're looking at where the data says, because a lot of times price is negotiable, but velocity is much harder to change. Right, right. That makes sense. That's a good way to look at it. So are there particular like industries that you've found are better than others? Is it really just like, can you just look at basically an Excel sheet and look at their sales and look at their, you know, momentum over time and say, you know, blindly if it's a good product or not to wholesale or are there certain like industries, categories, brands that you really look for when you're making these types of decisions? And I guess within that is how diverse do you get when you do it? Like, do you really just stick to a couple main categories and products and whatever it is and just double down on that? Or do you really change it up completely all the time? Great question. So it's a little bit of both. When it comes to the initial analysis, yeah, it's it's mostly data-driven, but then you're looking at all of the additional factors on Amazon, using tools like Keepa, you know, looking at sales histories, yeah. and all of these data sets are imperfect. So if by the time you have 100% of the information, that opportunity may have passed you. So there's right. a little bit That's of assumption, but then we do a lot of test buys. Like, you know, if you spend a grand or two, right. or even in some cases, $100 or whatever it is, put it into the market, see what it does. Does it sell right away? You know, does it have That's that traction? Point. I'm ready to go back in for more. Uh, I know plenty of people that stick with one or two categories. Personally, I'm in like seven different categories. I don't mind jumping around. Uh, and also what's interesting is a lot of times profitable products kind of hang out in groups, almost like successful people. Like you find something and yeah. you start looking at Jason and go, okay, here's a bunch of these like, you know, pet toys. Okay, now I'm looking in these sort of, you know, localized pet areas. What else is coming up with it? Here's some more things that might just work. And then as soon as I find something in another category, you know, I want to see what that does too. And a lot of times my yep. curiosity is driving me. Right, right. Yeah, find something undiscovered. Yeah. Possibly like a category that people haven't really explored as much yet. And just because I'm sure there are probably a couple main categories that everybody flocks to right away, which, you know, can potentially be problematic. One thing I've, I've been generally curious about, so I know this from a high level, but this I'm, I'm thinking that's something I might just not know a ton about. When you are you know, buying products, let's say direct from a brand you're wholesaling and you're not the only person that's 
is selling or has sold this product, what are the main things that you really like ultimately have control over? Like what levers as far as getting this listed, getting it sold, are you functionally able to pull and what are the most impactful? Uh, so off the bat, I'm looking at things like buy box rotation. So I want to see, is there actually room for me to sell this? You know, right. if somebody has 98% of the buy box, I might be able to get in there. But, you know, and you can see some of the keep it data, like how deep, you know, if there have been 10 other sellers, but they're all capturing half a point. That right. might be less interesting. If there's enough rotation there, I think I can get in. And then some of the behind the scene metrics, can I keep it in stock? Maybe I run a, a very low ad spend behind it. You know, can I get it to enough fulfillment centers? Can I keep a, a steady flow of it? Because Amazon likes when you're in stock. They like to yep. make sure that it's continuously going. You have strong account health, things like this. And that can allow you to be competitive within the space, especially when there's a couple of other, you know, sizable players. But it seems like everybody's playing nice. And, and that's really more of a function of the algorithm. But still, right. the algorithm is like, no, th this seems like a fair market. Then, then there's a good opportunity. And then, yeah, you go in with a test buy and go, okay, this is competitive enough. Let's rock out. Yep, that totally makes sense. And I'm assuming because, you know, if you have a seller account and you sell a number of products and you have great um, seller feedback, you have a history of selling things, do you think that Amazon values that really heavily when you're in a buy box rotation with a bunch of other sellers? Is that one of the main things they look for? What other, like, what are the main things in this, you know, in a saturated market that, Amazon really looks for in determining who's going to win a buy box. You know, it, it's, I mean, I've even called them to try and fix certain things. And every time they're yeah. like, black box, we can't help you. We can't tell you. And that's their proprietariness. Right. So in a way, it's like some people can come in brand new and be competitive. And in a way, I like that because it still leaves right. the space open for anyone new entering it. But then- That's what made Amazon great in the first place. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> And then coming in and just being strong on all these other fronts. But then there's, you know, what we're saying is a product. But what if that product does become too saturated? Well, I'm also working on 20 other products. So if right. one gets too much, right. I have other things to do. And then like something gets on a lead list, a place has a sale, a distributor, you know, there's a, a an event like ASD where there's distributors everywhere and then they start selling it. Sometimes I have to pull back on a product. And just wait for everybody to sell through. And if it gets, the price gets bad, people start fleeing it, you know, they're just trying to get their money back out. And then at a certain point, equilibrium gets hit. Most of those people are gone. They're not looking to get back in. And I'm just periodically checking and going, okay, now's the time to come back on, on this specific product. Now we're right. playing. Right. You can, if you, you know, are able to hold the inventory a bit and just pop in when it makes sense. I, I get that. Um, one thing that you said, that I, I'm I'm interested in this just because you know I've heard clients say things like this as well. And I'm always curious. I have an idea, but I'm curious to know what it really means. When you say playing fair, like is everybody playing fair when you look at you know a number of people that are competing for a buy box? What would what would constitute somebody not playing fair? Like what is like some is it just somebody with more money that's able to price gouge more or what is what is ultimately not playing fair? Oh, I would say there's nothing about playing fair. I just like to think of it as fair because it keeps me okay. <laughs> from feeling negative emotions. There, there are so many right. tricks. Okay. You know, like there's things yeah. like if somebody's sending it in, you know, FBM, uh, merchant fulfilled. So you're you're basically fulfilling yep. it like eBay. Um, yep. People will put in things like they have 999 units when they probably have, you know, 50. Because if you have more units, Amazon looks at that favorably. 
Um, yep. Sometimes and they have so, no way, obviously, of checking on it if it's FBM. <laughs> That's, right. I didn't even think about that. That's interesting. right. And then we'll do things. So we'll use repricers to be able to, you know, stay competitive. You know, it'll drop it a penny, raise it a penny, things like that, which can yeah. the oscillation can help. But sometimes people don't have the repricer set up well. So somebody at like 2 a.m. will tank the price for a minute. If other repricers follow it down, they'll buy out their inventory and then pump the price back up. So like interesting. And, so and these, that would essentially just cause other people to sell a bunch at a lower price if they're using an automatic tool, whereas they just <laughs> oh yeah. man. And, and these funny. are just a couple of the tricks. So there, there's like all these little ways. I mean, one thing they used to do, it, it's it's less common now, but they would buy a ton of your inventory, but with like a credit card that doesn't work. So it would just leave it as a pending inventory and lock up some of your inventory oh, while they sell theirs. See, that's that that to me constitutes unfair or like at least yes. unethical. Like that's yeah, that's that's bad, man. I mean, I I am so not a fan of that of that type of business practice. That's but that is a funny funny in the sense of it's interesting like thing to have happen in the space that people don't <clears throat> really think about with Amazon. No, I'm I'm I believe in being 100% ethical. I don't have interest in that sort of thing. I'll make money without pulling any tricks, but you learn the tricks. It's really helpful because sometimes you can see them or you can prevent it. So like one way to prevent that is you have order limits. So, you know, right. instead of somebody being able to buy 50 of your units, they can only buy, you know, four. You know, and then that sort of restricts things. It also, when you do that, it changes the data that they can pull. So it's kind of masks some of your data. Um, so it's, yeah, there's little things that people can do, but it's just about staying on top of your stuff, understanding your backend, also a massive edge. Because uh, a lot of people like to look at the orange bars, which are the, the revenue that you're getting on a monthly basis. But really, it's profit that matters. So if you understand like Amazon sometimes loses or damages your inventory and they will refund you for it, but they don't always refund you without you asking. So you have to stay right. on top of your back end. And so even just running a clean business on the back end can put you in more profit and keep you competitive far longer than people realize. Interesting. That Some of that almost reminds me of like, <clears throat> well, for one, we had a team at Thrasio, I remember that specifically their whole job was like defensive maneuvering in like various ways. And what the, what these guys ultimately reminded me of and what, what you're talking about, some of, I mean, the ways that you learn these things are through other people doing them, but it's like how companies would hire previous hackers to form their cybersecurity defense sort of thing. Like it's, you have to almost know how to do, you don't necessarily have to have done it in the past, but you have to know how to do these sort of underhanded tricks if you want to properly defend yourself against them. 100%. You know, if you know how the game is played, then you're in a much stronger position to keep playing it for much longer and you become less of a target. You know, somebody who's going right. to be nefarious, if, if it doesn't work on you, they want to move on. Right. Oh, man. That's, that's a lot to think about. And it's funny because... Again, it's just these sort of, and there, there are obviously other, you know, brand side, other pitfalls. It's just, it's funny to me, like so many of these things do ring true. And there are a lot, there's a lot of overlap with just big competitors of different brands within the same space. But it is funny hearing about a lot of these, the, the differences and the similarities between that and then competing on the same product with different sellers. It's just, it's a, a lot of similarities, but it's a bit of a different ballgame. Lots of overlap. So, one last thing uh, before I 
leave it to you for a quick wrap up and how to get into contact and all that stuff. Um, well, you actually already touched on this one, but what if you had to just put one thing on it as far as getting into this world, what what do you think is the best piece of advice for somebody that's just incredibly early or so, just ha even just has an interest in it? Well, it is. I've seen people come out the gate making money. I'd say the biggest piece of advice is if you're going to take the first three, four months, don't worry about making a dime. Just learn the systems, learn what's going on. Yeah. If you make a little money, cool. But understanding how it works is going to create your foundation. And once you have that totally. base of knowledge, that will carry you for years to come. Yep. That's that's smart. I think that that, that really can go for a lot of, I mean, it, it functionally, it's starting your own business is what it is. And that's how people have to look at it more than it is, you know, picking up a hobby. And I, I love that piece of advice. And when I've heard people give it, or I've, I've said something similar in the past, one thing that people have said is, well, I can't afford to go, you know, three to four months without making money. And that's the case for a ton of people. But ultimately, if you can't, then it's probably just not the right time to pick it up at the end of the day. So that that totally makes sense. But you could also do this as a side thing, for example. If you have a job or yeah. you need a job, get one. Have some money coming in. Right. And you can do this part time. You can you can dabble in it and gain the right. knowledge before you have to, you know, it's it's the then crawl to walk to run. To not make money for a couple months because you're already making money somewhere else. And that's yeah. It's just if you need this to be profitable right now for you to, you know, pay rent, then you should have another stream of income for now because it's it's going to take a little bit of time. It, it um, takes time and you want to avoid those pitfalls that you would have otherwise, you know, if you're running, you know, if you trail run and it's your first time on a trail, you might not know there's that pothole and you're in trouble versus right. I've walked it. I know what to do here. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's really smart. Well, Ian, this has all been super helpful. Um, I've learned a lot, and this this was definitely a unique topic. Um, I don't know if there's anything, any other bits of advice you can think of before we wrap it up, or lastly, just if anybody did want to get into contact with you that's listening, what, what would be the best way to do so? Uh, so my handle is the same on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, Coach Ian Mack, that's I-A-N-M-A-C, uh, and just... The thing to keep in mind, because I know a lot of people think about this stuff for a long time before they do it, it's worth trying. It's worth giving it a, a real go if you're thinking about it, but be patient, be smart with it. And you never know, it could just be a little extra income or it could become your full-time thing. And, and it's the, the possibilities are endless. So it's, it's worth the thought, yeah. but like anything that's worth doing, it's worth doing right. Yeah, awesome. Well, we really appreciate the time, man and we will talk soon. Awesome, thanks a lot.